Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Thank you very much for joining me. Again, this is pre-recorded, and the first time it will be aired will be June the 3rd. 2015, and uh, hope that you've been feeling well mentally and emotionally. I have some very interesting news that I've found lately that I'd like to share with you. Things about how our relationships affect our mental and physical health, how our genes can affect our emotions, and we'll have some time, hopefully, to get to some not so common, but difficult to treat psychiatric-related syndromes. Let's start tonight's show with a study that I found surprising. It says that stressed-out wives may make men's blood pressure rise. Now, when I saw that, my first thought was, hmm, okay, well, that's kind of interesting because I would have thought it's quite a bit the other way around. In other words, when men are stressed out, they tend not to deal with that too well, and they tend to take it out on their wives. So my thought was, that seems backwards. If anything, to me, it would be stressed out men that would make their wives' blood pressure rise. But let's examine the article about the study, see what it says, and see if it mentions anything about the side that I see in my own practice and uh, that I thought would be more of an issue. When older men have stressed out wives, their own blood pressure may go up. This according to United States study. All right, so right off the bat, they're not talking about all men, they're talking about just older men. While previous research has linked stress and bad relationships to elevated blood pressure in general, less is known about how these challenges affect both members of a couple and how the spouses affect one another over time. For the current study, researchers evaluated about 1,350 couples once in 2006 and again in 2010 to see how each person's blood pressure might change based on shifts in their relationship satisfaction or stress levels. They found that husbands had higher blood pressure when wives reported greater stress and that this link was even greater when husbands felt more negative about the relationship. In addition, Negative marital quality experienced by only one member of the couple 
was not associated with blood pressure, but when both members of the couple reported higher negative marital quality, they both had higher blood pressure. About one in three United States adults has high blood pressure, according to the National Institutes of Health. Researchers reviewed data from a nationwide sample of 22,000 people born in 1953 or earlier. That defines older for you, I guess, right there. Someone born in 1953 uh, right now is uh, 62 years old. And they were focusing on a subset of opposite-sex couples with both members having participated in face-to-face -face interviews about their relationships. Compared to the larger group, the subset in this study was healthier, younger, more likely to be white, and report less chronic stress. Most couples were married, but 3% were cohabitating. In 2006, about one-third of husbands had high blood pressure, as did 26% of the wives. By 2010, 37% of the men and 30% of the women had high blood pressure. Stressed-out husbands had lower blood pressure when their wives reported less stress. The stressed-out women, however, had lower blood pressure when their husbands were also under a lot of stress. Well, that blows my theory right there, thinking that um, <clears throat> when women are stressed out and their husbands are stressed out, I would have thought that would raise their blood pressure. So, so much for my brilliant idea. Now, this next part may shed some light on my theory. The wife's stress was more likely to be linked to high blood pressure in their spouses when the men were unhappy with the relationship. The study only used four questions to assess relationship quality, which might miss some nuances that could impact the results. This study was reported online on April 7th in the Journal of Gerontology, Series B. Now, there is mounting evidence that exposure to stress, including negative relationships or marriages, is related to poor physiological outcomes. Older husbands tend to be dependent on their wives for care, defined broadly as meal preparation, household responsibility, and caregiving. For older couples whose marriages follow more traditional gender roles, it makes sense that older husbands would have decreased mental and physical health in response to their wives' decline. Yes, uh, that makes perfect sense. So the bottom line, apparently, is especially in older married men <clears throat> who become increasingly dependent on their wives, um, if their wives seem stressed out, uh, somehow, consciously or maybe not consciously at all, they perceive this uh, as somehow a threat to their wives being able to take care of them, and therefore that increases their blood pressure.
But also, I think one of the take-home points of the study is that it isn't just a question of which spouse is stressed and how that may or may not affect the other spouse's blood pressure. It's also the quality of the relationship that plays a role. And if one partner or the other uh, perceives the quality of the relationship as being poor or negative in some way, then that will certainly affect the blood pressure of the spouse. So there you have it, folks. Sometimes researchers give you information that you might not expect. All right, well, we're going to take in this next segment a look at a much earlier age group, well, somewhat earlier in any case, adult survivors of child abuse. It is well known that child abuse has devastating consequences for mental health in adults, including the quality of their relationships. So I saw this study that had some actual positive uh, results to report that healthy relationships may prevent depression in child abuse survivors. And right there on the surface, that certainly is a hopeful message. Uh, But certainly, it, it cannot be ignored that someone who is a child abuse survivor has a tremendous amount of challenges uh, in terms of being able to enter into healthy relationships in the first place, into adulthood. All right, so let's, let's examine this research. Child abuse survivors who find stable romantic relationships as adults may also find that these relationships help protect against depression Researchers followed a group of 485 young adults in Rochester, New York, for 12 years to see how exposure to neglect or maltreatment during childhood would influence their ability to have satisfying relationships with intimate partners and their susceptibility to depression. In the sample, they did not find evidence that maltreatment reduces the likelihood that an individual will be in a stable, satisfying, intimate partner relationship. So the researchers did not find, at least in their sample, that just having been a victim of child abuse would compromise your ability to have a stable, healthy relationship with a partner. They used records from Child Protective Services to identify 99 participants who had been abused before the age of 18 and compared their experiences to a group of 386 people who weren't maltreated. At the start of the study, participants were about 25 years old on average. Those who were abused as children were more likely to be black, have a mother who became a parent before age 19, and live in a poor neighborhood with a higher arrest rate. For 12 years, participants completed questionnaires about the status and quality of their relationships, their mental health, and their children. While abuse survivors 
we're more likely to be depressed, which is something that's been a consistent finding in other research. A history of maltreatment didn't impact whether they were in a committed relationship or their level of satisfaction with the relationship. Both survivors and non-survivors were less likely to experience depression when they were in a stable, satisfying relationship. Not surprising there. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue to look at the results of this study and its implications, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host here. We're talking about a study that shows that child abuse survivors who are quite prone to depression in adulthood may avoid that if they can form healthy romantic relationships. Now, participants in the study who became parents and had solid relationships with intimate partners, were less likely to be depressed. The duration of the relationship needed to have this effect didn't matter for people who were abused as children. However, people who didn't experience maltreatment 
needed longer relationships to be protected against depression. Somewhat interesting, you wouldn't have expected that. Now, one limitation of the study is its reliance on the questionnaires about depression symptoms rather than a diagnosis by a clinician to identify participants with mental health difficulties. And by the way, the research was published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. They also don't know if symptoms of depression might have influenced the relationship rather than the other way around. The study also doesn't address the age at which children were first exposed to abuse or trauma, or whether it was a single incident or an ongoing problem. And it doesn't identify people with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, which is common after abuse and can go hand-in-hand with depression. While most people exposed to abuse or trauma recover naturally with time, the study does offer fresh insight into one factor that might contribute to their long-term mental health. One of the things that the trauma field has been trying to figure out is what makes people resilient. Most folks get better, but for the folks that don't, this study suggests that a stable relationship can make a difference. Now the question is, how can we identify the folks who are going to have trouble before it develops? Abuse and trauma in childhood can lead to drug and alcohol abuse later in life, teen pregnancy, and other difficulties. If there was a way to identify a child before all of those other problems developed, then they would only have to treat one thing instead of all those other things that might be able to be prevented with intervention. So there you have it. The study identifies some important findings in what may help prevent depression in child abuse survivors. Uh, having a stable relationship, but also clearly identifies myriad other challenges in this population. Next up on psychiatry today, this study caught my eye. It says how your brain reacts to emotional information is influenced by your genes. Well, on the surface, it doesn't seem too terribly surprising because even though some people may not care to admit it, just about everything we do emotionally or behaviorally is influenced by our genes. Uh, But I was hoping when I read this article there'd be some specifics. So we'll see what they found. And indeed, there, there is a specific gene. Well, so again, your genes may influence how sensitive you are to emotional information. According to this new research by a neuroscientist, the study was recently published in the Journal of Neuroscience, it found that carriers of a certain genetic variation perceived positive and negative images more vividly and had heightened activity in certain brain regions. For people with this particular gene variation, 
the emotionally relevant things in the world stand out much more. The gene in question is called ADRA2B, which influences the neurotransmitter norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is one of those neurotransmitters that is very much involved in mood as well as thinking and cognition. Medications like Cymbalta and Effexor and Pristique and Fetsima, which are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, affect both norepinephrine and serotonin. Now, previous research found that carriers of a variation of this ADRA2B gene showed greater attention to negative words. This latest research is the first to use brain imaging to find out how the gene affects how vividly people perceive the world around them. And the results were startling to researchers. They thought from previous research that people with this variation would probably show this emotionally enhanced vividness, and they did more than would even be predicted. They scanned the brains of 39 participants, 21 of whom were carriers of the genetic variation. And carriers of the gene variation showed significantly more activity in a region of the brain responsible for regulating emotions and evaluating both pleasure and threat. This may help explain why some people are more susceptible to post-traumatic stress disorder and experiencing intrusive memories following exposure to trauma. Emotions are not only about how we feel about the world, but how our brains influence our perception of it. As our genes influence how we literally see the positive and negative aspects of our world more clearly, we may come to believe the world has more rewards or threats. <clears throat> it's interesting to see that a gene that helps influence the neurotransmitter norepinephrine uh, would be so intimately tied to this uh, emotional vividness, if you will. Now, there are also benefits to having this particular gene variation. People who have the this variant are drawing on an additional network in their brains important for calculating the emotional relevance of things in the world. In any situation where noticing what's relevant in the environment is important, this gene variation would be a positive. Study participants were asked to estimate the amount of noise or pixelation applied to images that had either positive, negative, or neutral emotional content. Compared to non-carriers, carriers of the ADRA2B variant gene estimated lower levels of noise on positive or negative images relative to neutral images, indicating emotionally enhanced vividness. 
Carriers of this variation also showed significantly more brain activity, reflecting emotionally enhanced vividness in key regions of the brain sensitive to emotional relevance. The ADRA2B variant appears in varying degrees across different ethnicities. Although roughly 50% of the Caucasian population studied by these researchers in Canada carry this genetic variation, it has been found to be prevalent in other ethnicities. For example, one study found that just 10% of Rwandans carried this ADRA2B gene variant. Further research is planned to explore emotionally enhanced vividness in other ethnic groups and how ADRA2B influences emotional associations related to anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and addiction. Uh, so then in that case, it would hopefully lead to better treatments for those disorders and perhaps for depression as well. All right. Next up on psychiatry today, we're going to talk about some new research about fibromyalgia, which, strictly speaking, is not a psychiatric disorder per se. Uh, it is a disorder that causes uh, pain and severe fatigue, and most of the time, but not always, is associated with debilitating depression and cognitive dysfunction, meaning problems with thinking and memory. But for better or for worse, it is classified as a connective tissue or rheumatologic disorder uh, as opposed to a mental illness or a psychiatric disorder. But some <clears throat> new research has found that fibromyalgia has central nervous system origins. And this is a very exciting development because right now there's really not a good treatment for fibromyalgia. Typically, patients with fibromyalgia, and these are far and away mostly women, uh, are treated by psychiatrists, uh, occasionally by rheumatologists and primary care physicians, but many wind up going to see psychiatrists because of the strong correlation between the pain and fatigue and cognitive function that is caused by fibromyalgia and the resultant depression from those disabilities, or perhaps the depression may be also a symptom of the fibromyalgia for that particular patient. And there really are not very good treatments to deal with the symptoms of fibromyalgia uh, in fact, there were none until just very recently. Cymbalta, Lyrica, and Savella are FDA-approved to treat fibromyalgia. Cymbalta and Savella are SNRIs, or selective um, <clears throat> serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And Cymbalta is sold as an antidepressant. Savella is also sold as an antidepressant, but not in the United States. And Lyrica is related to an anticonvulsant that helps reduce pain. And that's all these treatments do. They help reduce pain, 
but they don't really get at the core symptoms of fibromyalgia. We have to take a commercial break. Much more on this study. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay with all the latest mental health related news. We are now talking about one of the syndromes that is often treated by psychiatrists, even though it's strictly speaking certainly not classified as a psychiatric disorder. We're talking about fibromyalgia. And this new research may finally shed some light about why it is that we psychiatrists wind up treating it more often than not, because apparently it has been found to have central nervous system origins. Fibromyalgia, again, it's classified as a rheumatologic disorder, but it's the second most common one behind osteoarthritis. And that should tell you something, and that means it's ranked ahead of rheumatoid arthritis. Though still widely misunderstood, it is now considered to be a lifelong central nervous system disorder, which is responsible for the amplified pain that shoots through the body in those who suffer from it. Now, this, uh, this analysis comes to us from uh, the annual meeting of the American Pain Society, and fibromyalgia can be thought of as both a discrete disease and also as a final common pathway of pain. Most people with this condition have lifelong histories of chronic pain throughout their bodies. The condition can be hard to diagnose if one isn't familiar with classic symptoms because there isn't a single cause and there are no outward signs. Fibromyalgia pain comes more from the brain and spinal cord than from areas of the body 
in which someone may experience peripheral pain. This is a perfectly good explanation for why certain antidepressants, like Cymbalta and Civella, which again is not sold as an antidepressant in this country, but is in other countries, are approved to treat fibromyalgia, because these two antidepressants certainly affect the pain pathways in the spinal cord and probably in the brain as well. Fibromyalgia is believed to be associated with disturbances in how the brain processes pain and other sensory information. Physicians should suspect fibromyalgia in patients with pain that's mostly musculoskeletal in many, many different sites of the body that is not fully explained by injury or inflammation. Because pain pathways throughout the body are amplified in fibromyalgia patients, pain can occur anywhere. So chronic headaches, visceral pain that's from the organs, the stomach, and, for example, and sensory hyper-responsiveness. Uh, an example of this would be being abnormally sensitive to very light touch, which someone experiences as being very painful. These are all experienced as pain uh, by the patient with fibromyalgia as opposed to people without it. Now, this does not imply that peripheral pain input, that is from the nerves that start in the skin and then travel eventually to the spinal cord, doesn't contribute to pain experienced by fibromyalgia patients. They're not trying to say that it's all in the spinal cord in the brain, but these patients do feel pain more than normally would be expected from the degree of input from the peripheral sensors and nerves. Now, people with fibromyalgia and other pain states characterized by this hypersensitization will experience pain from what those without the condition would describe as just light touch. Due to the central nervous system origins of fibromyalgia pain, treatments with opioids, that is uh, narcotic pain relievers, or other narcotic analgesics usually are not effective because they do not reduce the activity of the neurotransmitters in the brain. These drugs have never been shown to be effective in fibromyalgia patients, and there is evidence that opioids might even worsen fibromyalgia and other centralized pain states. Now, so what are clinicians to do? Well, uh, the recommendation is to integrate pharmacological treatments, such as, well, they refer to it in the article as gabapentinoids. Very interesting to me. I've never seen that term used before. What we have is gabapentin itself, um, <clears throat> sold under the old brand name as Neurontin. Now, Neurontin is only officially approved for epilepsy 
and for trigeminal neuralgia, post-herpetic neuralgia, but it's widely used on an unapproved uh, basis to treat innumerable other types of pain. Um, in psychiatry, the only legitimate research that's been done on it was in panic disorder and social anxiety, and in both cases, small studies found it to be effective, not nearly enough research that would have to be done to get Neurontin approved as a legitimate treatment for those illnesses. And it was touted for many years as an effective treatment for bipolar disorder, uh, but that was a scandalous flop, as the placebo notoriously helped prevent mania in bipolar patients better than did Neurontin. However, Neurontin, because of its... Uh, central nervous system act, act on, uh, action on pain is often prescribed to fibromyalgia patients. And then you have the aforementioned Lyrica, which is chemically very much related to gabapentin and is officially approved to treat fibromyalgia. So I guess that's what the author of this article is talking about when they're referring to gabapentinoids, that would be Neurontin and its much, much more expensive cousin, Lyrica. Side effects of both of those are pretty rough, by the way. Um, <clears throat> they're far worse with Lyrica than they are with Neurontin, but both of them can cause tiredness, problems with memory, and weight gain. Now, they also suggest other pharmacologic treatments, the tricyclics. What are those? Those are the older generation antidepressants from what I call the pre-Prozac era, um, 1987-88, when Prozac came out. Prior to that, all we had were the tricyclic antidepressants and the MAOI antidepressants. So the tricyclics were things like Elevil, Tofranil, Pamelor, Norpermin, uh, surmontal, uh, you know, anaphronil is also a, a tricyclic. But the point being that tricyclics have also been used to treat central nervous system related pain, again, spinal cord and brain. Just look, for example, at the drug Elevil. Elevil has a very long tradition for being used to treat peripheral neuropathy pain in diabetics. Now, we are more familiar with a much more modern drug, that is Cymbalta, um, that is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and that is also FDA-approved as a treatment for diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain, and that is another pharmacologic category that the researchers recommends that doctors consider to treat fibromyalgia pain. And as we said, there are two SNRIs that are FDA approved to treat fibromyalgia pain. One is Cymbalta, uh, the other is Civella, which is only approved to treat fibromyalgia in the United States, but in the rest of the world is also approved to treat Depression. By the way, let me just mention something 
about Savella, you know, maybe a lot of listeners are like, well, what is that? I've never heard of that. It, Savella is levomilnasopran. Uh, or I'm sorry, no, it's it's just, sorry, milnasopran. Okay, and if you just divide milnasopran into its separate isomers, the active isomer or chemical fraction of milnasopran, which is Savella, is levomilnasopran, and that, presto changeo, is Fetzema, which is now being sold in the United States and elsewhere in the world as an antidepressant. But, interestingly enough, even though Savella, an SNRI, which is sold as a treatment for fibromyalgia here in the United States, is the parent compound of Fetzema itself, an SNRI, there are no plans to get Fetzema approved as a treatment for fibromyalgia. Now, in addition to these pharmacologic approaches, researchers also recommend non-pharmacologic approaches. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to make a big difference in the quality of life in fibromyalgia patients uh, in terms of being um, better able to cope with their pain and the disability that the disease causes. Exercise. Exercise is well known to reduce the incidence of pain in fibromyalgia patients, but it is absolutely crucial that it be done in a measured fashion. It is very common in fibromyalgia patients for the symptoms to wax and wane on a daily basis. So what will happen is if it happens to be a day when they're not having that much pain and they're feeling good, they might do too much in the way of physical activity either exercise or chores around the house or yard, and then, boy, will they pay for it afterwards. So whether it's doing exercise or doing work or chores around the house or the yard, it's very important for the fibromyalgia patient to pace themselves, take a measured pace with things, because if they overdo it, they are going to pay for it big time the next day. Well, we have to Stop here for a commercial break. When we come back, we'll finish our thoughts on the fibromyalgia study, and then we have some other unusual syndromes to talk about. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. 
Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Uh, again, just summing up our discussion of the fibromyalgia research showing it has central nervous system origins. We were talking about the recommended treatments being a variety of pharmacologic treatments, be those uh, things like gabapentin and Lyrica or tricyclics like Elevil, or SNRIs like Cymbalta, Civella, um, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise, and stress reduction. Uh, now, sometimes the magnitude of treatment response for simple and inexpensive non-drug therapies exceeds that for pharmaceuticals. The greatest benefit is improved function, which should be the main treatment goal for any chronic pain condition, including fibromyalgia. The majority of patients with fibromyalgia can see improvement in their symptoms and lead normal lives with the right medications and extensive use of non-drug therapies. I definitely think that's very true, uh, that when it comes to dealing with fibromyalgia, just reliance on drug therapy alone is not going to get the job done. But if the patient is able to access other modalities, such as cognitive behavioral therapy and exercise and stress reduction, such as yoga, for example, uh, I definitely think that the severity of their symptoms will lessen and their quality of life will improve. Next up on psychiatry today, um, <clears throat> a syndrome that is somewhat even more obscure, I think, than fibromyalgia, actually quite a bit more obscure. Have you ever heard of burning mouth syndrome? That's right, burning mouth syndrome, or BMS. Now, whether you have or not, you might very well ask, well, what in what could that possibly have to do with psychiatry, burning mouth syndrome? That sounds like pain in the mouth from the burning sensation, right? And yes, that's exactly what it is. Well, for one reason or another, when people have this symptom, uh, unfortunately what happens most of the time, they go to their primary care physician, they go to their dentist, they go see an oral surgeon, 
All kinds of blood tests and other exams are done. Nothing is found. And, of course, the person is in a great deal of psychic distress over their condition. So, guess what? They wind up seeing a psychiatrist, even though this clearly is a physical symptom that is causing them problems. Now, <clears throat> I can tell you in my own practice that I've seen very few patients with this disorder over the years. Uh, I can literally say in over about 22 years of practice, only three patients with this. Uh, but you remember in the earlier segment, um, we were talking about fibromyalgia and the use of SNRI medications to treat the pain associated with fibromyalgia, including Cymbalta, let's say. Well, um, I've had some success in treating this symptom with Cymbalta, um, you know, as a uh, medication which we know dampens the pain signals in the spinal cord and in the brain. Uh, so really, as far as dealing with the pain of burning mouth syndrome, uh, sometimes psychiatric medications uh, are a fairly successful means of treatment compared to anything that a primary care physician or even a dentist or oral surgeon has to offer. But when I saw this article about one particular woman's cause, I thought, well, let me talk about this on the show. Maybe somebody listening has either had this problem himself or knows someone who does. It's about a healthy 65-year-old woman who developed a relentless burning feeling in her mouth that stumped doctors and dentists for months before its strange cause was found, according to a recent report of her case. Now, I would like to say before I go any further in relating this uh, article about this woman's case to you that, unfortunately, most often there is no cause that is found for burning mouth syndrome. Uh, now, the burning got worse for this woman whenever she brushed her teeth, but then it subsided within 10 minutes. The pain went away after one month after she first experienced it, but then it returned a year later and remained constant. She saw a dentist, an oral surgeon, and her family doctor, but none of them could find any lesions in the mouth or other possible causes of the burning. And this is quite typical of most patients' experience with this symptom. They prescribed mouthwashes, milk of magnesia rinses, ooh, that must have tasted pretty good, huh? And anti-anxiety drugs, and recommended avoiding toothpaste with whitening agents. A good idea, but nothing relieved the burning sensation. So this woman had a case of burning mouth syndrome, which is defined as a chronic, meaning long-lasting, burning sensation inside the mouth, usually in the lips, tongue, or palate. Now, the study of this woman's case was published on April 1 in the journal British Medical Journal Case Reports. 
it's actually more common in postmenopausal women and affects up to 7% of the general population. The one author of the study compares the feeling to a sunburn inside the mouth. It feels similar to the pain caused by a tooth infection or a root canal. The condition can be a side effect of certain drugs, but other cases have no apparent medical or dental cause. So imagine that, feeling sunburned inside your mouth. That's got to be an awful feeling, and no wonder if you're feeling that way and no one can find what's wrong or help you get rid of it, no wonder you become anxious or and or depressed. I mean, how can anyone just be comfortable living with that or enjoy any food or drink? Now, after the woman had experienced this pain for six months, doctors tested her saliva for the virus that causes oral herpes, the herpes simplex virus type 1 or HSV1. The virus commonly causes cold sores around the mouth and lips, but the woman didn't have any cold sores. Uh, HSV1 is in contrast to HSV2, which is the related virus that causes genital herpes. Now, the tests showed that the woman's saliva was swarming with these infectious HSV1 virus particles. If she'd had cold sores, it would have been obvious. But most people don't think of HSV1 as the potential cause of burning mouth syndrome, so they don't test for it. But, of course, it's easily treatable with antiviral medication. The woman began taking an antiviral drug, and her pain disappeared within five days. Follow-up tests of her saliva done four weeks later, and again six months later, found no hint of the virus. A year and a half after finishing her treatment, the patient remains pain-free. Estimates vary, but up to 70% of people worldwide may be infected with HSV-1. This herpes simplex virus is spread through kissing, intimate contact, or sharing objects such as toothbrushes or towels, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. In most infected people, the virus never becomes activated. When the virus is activated, typically due to stress or a suppressed immune system, it usually causes cold sores that eventually go away on their own. But sometimes the virus can reactivate without causing cold sores, as this woman's case demonstrates. Instead, it infects the facial nerves, most commonly the trigeminal ganglion, which provides sensation in the face and mouth. Researchers still don't know why the herpes virus reactivated in the woman, but they speculated that it might have been due to hormonal fluctuations because she was postmenopausal. <clears throat> and indeed, they said that this is most common in, uh, or very common in postmenopausal women. 
Now, HSV-1, it turns out, may be the culprit for a number of unexplained medical symptoms besides burning mouth syndrome. And of course, that makes sense because if it affects the trigeminal ganglion, which is a nerve bundle that provides sensation to the face and mouth, there's a whole host of other disorders that you potentially could implicate uh, HSV-1 being the culprit, like trigeminal neuralgia. Um, they have found preliminary evidence that the virus can cause migraine headaches, and therefore patients get relief from taking antiviral medication. And uh, in rare cases, HSV-1 can cause a sort of a viral encephalitis, which is a type of brain inflammation that can cause significant brain damage or death if not treated properly. Well, while this one woman's case is very interesting, and I think it certainly makes it a good case that anyone who reports symptoms of burning mouth syndrome should be tested for levels of the HSV-1 virus, and if they're found to be elevated, receive treatment with antiviral drugs that are effective against HSV-1, um, <clears throat> I think that should be expanded to other atypical facial or head and neck or oral pain syndromes as well. Uh, but again, it would be just as important to be cautious as to thinking that this HSV-1 viral infection would be the magic answer to a number of different disorders. It was in this one woman's case, but in fact, treating burning mouth syndrome successfully is uh, unfortunately rare. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again. If not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.